To better understand today's China, Zach Dykwald recommends you explore the city within a city in its mega-sized urban areas. For contrast, take the train out into the countryside. Travel from a city like Suzhou out towards the farmland is as much akin to time travel as it is to actual physical travel. He recommends how you can connect with the people of China. While the pandemic has canceled this year's Mardi Gras parties, let's celebrate the season by exploring the origins of the old world traditions for Carnival in Venice. There's gorgeous costumes, full regala, palace parties. It's the greatest people watching period of the year. And in the Rhineland of Germany, Carnival in Protestant regions is boring or non-existent because only the Catholics know how to do it. And get to love the many types of cheese they make in France. It was really a wonderful thing to see that cheese start being born. It's a virtual party in the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. I love art, and in my new book, Europe's Top 100 Masterpieces, I share my favorites with gorgeous photos and vivid descriptions. It's a greatest hit sweep through art history via the finest paintings, sculpture, and architecture ever. It's all in Europe's top 100 masterpieces. Art for the traveler. It's available now at ricksteves.com. Okay, you can't have a street party this year, but we can add a little sparkle to your socially distanced home celebration of Mardi Gras in the hour ahead. The origins of carnival street parties go deep into medieval Europe. And on today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear how people in Venice have celebrated masks and all since the 13th century, and how the faithful in Germany's Rhineland have their own traditions for blowing off some bacchanalian steam before the fasting days of Lent begin. We'll also get advice for exploring lesser-known destinations in China from a millennial American who's made it his virtual second home. There's one stereotype about the French that is true. They do love their cheese. They even have a saying that a meal without cheese is like a beautiful woman with only one eye. Un repas sans fromage est comme une belle à qui manque un œil. Kathy Lyson grew up in the Wisconsin Dairyland. She's explored the far corners of France to sample a great variety of artisan French cheeses where they were made, and she writes about it in her book, The Whole Fromage. Yeah, well, the French are incredibly passionate about their cheese, and it's funny you brought that saying up because one of the things that really struck me—I spent a lot of time, of course, traveling around France, tasting cheeses, and I also spent a lot of time while I was doing that staying in B and Bs because I was in often very remote places where there weren't a lot of hotels. So I was staying in the homes of French people, and they would sort of go, "Okay, so and why are you here, <laughs> strange American lady? Out, you know, in this little hamlet where no one ever comes." And I would explain what I was doing, and they would invariably pull a cheese plate from their refrigerator. You know, it's just every French household has this this tradition, this ritual, this thing that they do every day, which is to eat cheese. They eat cheese after every evening meal. It's it's really quite extraordinary. Were you wearing your cheese head from Wisconsin? I was not. <laughs> I do, in fact, own one. I I don't like to admit to it. My my partner's、uh, sister sent me one as a joke one year at Christmas, but. No, I was I was fairly incognito. I was I had rental cars typically because again I was going to such out of the way places. I was going to places you couldn't get to by train. Kathy, when you went to these B and Bs and you told them what you were doing, what exactly did you tell them you were doing? I said I was writing a book about French cheese and that it was to explain to Americans the history and culture of French cheese. I think you know in this country we have a lot of new artisan cheeses, many of which are based on French originals, but people often don't know. 
the history and culture behind those cheeses, and that was what I really wanted to get across in the book. So you know Wisconsin cheese, and you know cheese that's produced in America, and then you went to France, and what happened? How, how is French cheese compared to American cheese? Why is it a big deal? When I was a kid growing up in Wisconsin, we basically had your average orangey kind of cheese. That was, <laughs> that was what we ate. And so the whole thing was really a new adventure for me in tasting really good cheeses. Are you saying that America is pretty simple? It's just going to be orange American, orangey cheese? And in, no, In Europe, it's more no, sophisticated? Absolutely not. No, the American cheese scene is really, really happening and really exciting. But again, it is based often on French originals. So, for example, there's a wonderful cheese in the um, French Jura region called Mont d'Or that you can only get in the wintertime. It's a soft cheese. You have to sort of, you can break into it and eat it with a spoon. And there's a very similar cheese um, that actually won the American Cheese Society um, contest this year. I think it was the Best in Show Award called Winamere that is based on that cheese. So would that be just as good here in the United States? Or is there something about the old world cheese that really is the ultimate? Hmm, now you're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> They're different. They're both good in their own ways, I would venture to say. So much of cheese has to do with where it's produced and what the animals whose milk they're using to make it have been eating. Um, and it really goes back to terroir. And the terroir here, of course, is not the terroir you have in Europe. Now, that's what I was thinking about. And I haven't heard terroir in the context of cheese because, of course, we generally think about that in the, in the sense of wine. But why not? Terroir is the culture. It's the sun. It's the soil. It's the history, the heritage. Tell us about one moment when you were in France and you realized, wow, this is really the ultimate for old world cheese culture. I had a wonderful experience high up in the French Alps with a cheese called Beaufort. They make lots of cheeses in the Alps, but this one is in particular is made very high up and it was traditionally made in the summertime. They make them in these little cheese chalets called alpages. And I was traveling with a friend, and she and I, uh, was very early on, and she and I didn't really know what we were doing, but we had this cheese map. Different regions of France have cheese maps, and we saw this address on it and thought, well, let's go up there, and didn't realize it was going to take us about an hour and a half, two hours of driving up this tiny little mountain road to get to the top of this mountain. But at any rate, we made it up there and discovered this man who was um, making a cheese all by himself, essentially, in this great big copper kettle. And what they do with before, it's a very large cheese. It weighs over 100 pounds. It's about as much as a small St. Bernard. And they have to pull the curds out in one swoop, or at least they try to. So he takes a cheesecloth and he leans over the edge of the kettle and balances on the edge of the kettle and then has a piece of metal in one end of the cheesecloth that allows him to swoop the cheesecloth down and under the curds in the kettle and then pulls that up and swings it over to his cheese mold and plops it down in that. And it was it was really a wonderful thing to see that cheese sort of hmm. being born in the Alps that way. It sounds almost like a romance. You're, you're in France, and you had a wonderful experience high in the Alps with Balfour cheese. It sounds so like a, a dream come true if you're really into cheese. Take us into that Alpine farm and give us the very simple basics of making cheese for rank beginners. Just like in one minute, how do you make cheese? Cheese has three basic ingredients. It's milk, rennet, and salt. And making a really simple cheese is, in fact, quite simple. I've had friends who've done it at home. You just sort of cook the curds a little bit. You can get the curds to set up pretty easily. And that's really about it. The curds are kind of a blank slate. And depending then upon how long you age it or what other things that you do to it, if you press it or cook it, all sorts of different things, that's how you end up with so many different types of cheese. Now, when you go to France, you're actually able to see the variety of the cheese making because that's the, the fundamental way you make cheese. But how would that change to distinguish cheese from Normandy compared to cheese from the Alps? 
Sort of the main cheese in Normandy that people are probably familiar with is camembert, and it's what's known as a pat mole. A pat is the what we call in English the paste of the cheese or the the stuff that's inside the rind, and then mole just means soft. And it's a soft cheese because they're lower, of course, in Normandy, and they didn't need to have a big, large, hard cheese as they would in the Alps to get them through the winter. So the cheeses that are lower tend to be smaller in size, and they tend to have softer rinds. That's not to say that they don't have cheeses with soft rinds in the Alps. They do. But again, you don't get the huge mountain cheeses in the lower regions that you, as you do in the Alps. Kathy Lyson is taking us to her favorite places to savor the distinctive cheeses of France right now on Travel with Rick Steves. She's the author of The Whole Fromage, Adventures in the Delectable World of French Cheese. Kathy also chronicles her adventure with the terroir of the old Pueblo of Tucson, Arizona. She describes the challenges of renovating a decaying adobe row house at housemadeofmud.com. You know, Kathy, looking through your book and, and talking to you, it seems like, of course, you're over there learning about cheese, but at the same time, you were learning about French culture. You wrote that uh, you're actually experiencing France through the culture of its cheese making and cheese makers. How did you learn about France by getting to know its cheese makers? You know, I think the most extraordinary thing about getting to research this book was driving around France. I never would have gotten in a car, and I believe I was in pretty much every French region, and I never would have done that had I not been researching the book. And that, to me, was really wonderful to get to see all of the different, there are different types of houses in different French regions, and then they have the different types of cheeses, and also to experience how incredibly warm and wonderful the French people are. I think the French people sometimes get get a bad rap. People go to Paris, and, and people in Paris can sometimes be sort of grumpy. And <laughs> It's a large city, like New York City. But get outside that big city, and the French people, especially when you go up to them and say something like, teach me about this piece of your tradition, I want to know about cheese, they're just incredibly warm and welcoming. So maybe there's a, a tip there for travelers just to have a mission. I mean, you've got your cheese map. You don't just have a map. You've got the cheese map, and that gives yes. you an excuse to, to go off the beaten path and meet people that don't have to deal with tourists all the time, but that have a passion for something that uh, they're proud to show off. Absolutely. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with uh, Kathy Lyson about the whole fromage. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. By email, it's radio at ricksteves.com. And Patrick in Indiantown, Florida, emailed us. And Patrick writes, In every country we visit in Europe, there's always some special food we eat a lot of. And in France, of course, it's cheese. Whenever we come home, we really stock up. My wife likes Roquefort. I like Benon. But the simple cheeses like Camembert and St. Andre, they're good as well. <laughs> so can you bring cheese home from your travels? Did you bring souvenirs home as cheeses? I did, yeah. It's illegal, of course, to uh, bring back a raw milk cheese, a cheese that's been made of raw milk that's been aged fewer than 60 days into the U.S. So uh, that's kind of a no-no, though, I, from my understanding, is people do it. <laughs> oh, I didn't but realize that, though. So there is something you should be aware of, assuming you don't want to get in trouble with the customs people. You can bring home cheese, but not cheese made from what again? It can't be a raw milk cheese that's been aged fewer than 60 days. Okay. So any any kind of fresh goat milk cheese would be a problem, as well as camembert, which is aged fewer than 60 days. So if, if a sightseer is heading off to France and they want to have a couple of great cheese experiences, name three or four, just quickly, cheese experiences you could find around France that stick out in your mind as great opportunities to both learn about the cheese culture and the French culture. There is a place in the Massif Central in central France called Salers, it's a village, and it's this lovely little village. It's still sort of within its medieval footprint, and French tourists tend to go there, but American tourists don't. 
And there's also a cheese called Salers. And so you can go there and stay in this lovely little village. And there's a place uh, right outside the village where they make the cheese Salers. Hmm. And it's a wonderful cheese. Another place that I would recommend going and that a lot of people don't think of is going to the Loire Valley, where people tend to go for to see the chateau, of course. But it's also a wonderful goat cheese territory, and it's great if you want to drive around the Loire and you can drive to the chateaus, and then as you're driving, also look for little signs that say goat cheese for sale, and you follow those down the road, and, and that's really a fun thing to do. And then we were talking about Camembert earlier. Camembert is also, it's an easy day trip from Paris to get to the village of Camembert. Mm. And then right outside that village, there's a man named François Durand who still makes Camembert by hand. He's the only farmhouse maker of Camembert cheese, and uh, they do visits at that farm as well. So that's a really nice thing to do. And your book is filled with ideas like this, The Whole Fromage. We've been talking with Kathy Lyson. Now, Kathy, when you're back in Wisconsin, after all of this rich French cheese experience... How do you wear your cheese head differently? <laughs> yeah, I. it's funny because when I'm home, I tend to fall back into eating just sort of sharp cheddar. Uh, that's kind of my, my go-to cheese when I'm at home. And when I'm in France, I tend to eat a much greater variety of cheeses. It's just, it becomes part of my day in the way it does for French people. So I think a lot of it can be very place dependent. I understand what you're saying. I, you know, I, I'm sort of a cultural chameleon like that, too. I, I love a cup of tea when I'm in England, and I love my cheese course when I'm in France. And that's mm-hmm. just a, a fun way to travel. Hey, Kathy Lyson, thanks so much, and best wishes with your continued appreciation of cheese and, and sharing with all of us the wonders of cheese, especially in France. Thank you. We'll hear how Carnival started in Venice and Germany in just a bit. But first, China leads the world in how many megacities it has. And the head of the Young China Group recommends which ones to visit next. We're at 877-333-RICK on Travel with Rick Steves. As a frequent traveler to China, Zach Dykwald recommends that we look for one thing when we're visiting the People's Republic. For sure, to really understand that country, look for the city within a city. And you'll find that in many of its booming metropolises. That can still show you a different side of China from the ultra-modern high-rise megacities of today to where they came from. Zach runs the Young China Group Consulting Service and joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to share his ideas for enjoying some of China's lesser-known features and attractions. Zach, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Rick. Explain this concept of a city within a city when you travel to China. What are you, what are you looking for? So a city within a city refers to sort of the blend of old and new. We know so much about China speed and how fast it's developed. And it's tempting just to look at the newest, sort of shiniest objects within China and say, okay, that's China today. And then you go to, you know, the, the historical the historical areas. Maybe you go to the Temple of Heaven, you go, you know, what have you. And you look at the oldest things within China, the two extremes. What I think is so defining of Chinese cities today is that because of the pace that they've changed, because of the pace that they've grown over the last 30 years, you have these incredibly modern buildings but also a block over, you might have something from the 1980s, something, something from the 1990s, a sign of China's status of a developing country. So a poor area where people will buy their groceries or, or go buy their meat or, you know, you have this, this ultra new and then a little bit more modest interwoven throughout the city. And it's not as clear as, you know, left and right, this block, that block, but often it's intermingled. So a city within a city, you have an extraordinarily modern, as well as something that's a little bit more modest, trying to catch up in China's incredible modernization race. This, for me as a traveler, is just a real challenge because it seems like 90% of the touristic interest in China is a few 
very, very old slices of, of sightseeing, you know, and then just immersed in all the skyscrapers. Uh, what would your advice be to keep things in perspective? Because it must exasperate you to see everybody going there and just wanting to see a couple of the, you know, bucket list ancient sites and not really connect with today's China. My recommendation is first is to take a train. I know this sounds silly, but China has one of the most amazing matrices of, of train networks in the entire world. And so you could get from Beijing to, to many places within China in a 12-hour overnight train. And those are really destinations within themselves. I think of planes as sort of like the waiting rooms or the elevators of travel. You sort of get in, whistle for, for a little bit, and then get out, and you're in an entirely new place. Trains allow you to see the sort of evolution of the country. You get to see how beautiful and big and vast China is, frankly, in, in many ways like America. My second piece of advice would be to go to a different city that's not Beijing or Shanghai. One of my favorite cities is Chongqing. Chongqing is more or less in the geographic center of China. It's known for its spicy food. Uh, it's a mountain city, so it's kind of like five Hong Kong stuck together. I think of it as the most visually stimulating city, metropolis that I've ever been to in my life. And there you have the super rich. You have this incredible modernization push that's really taken place in Chongqing in the last 10 years. But then you also have the really robust, local, less developed culture. And the two are so interwoven that even if you were just to go to Chongqing for a day, for an hour, being in Chongqing, you would absorb a side of China that, that's extraordinarily authentic, extraordinarily immersive, and you also have some of the best food in the country. Okay, so if I go to, I'm so accustomed to Europe, and you go to the big church, you know, you go to the city hall, you go to the art gallery, you go to the museum. I doubt if you're talking about any of that stuff. When you're going to Chongqing, you're being there. D describe that more intimately. Am I going to go to a market? Am I going to hang out in the main square? Am I going to go into the, the subway system? What is it like to be there? So, Rick, I, I might feel a little bit like you in some of the travel I like to do, which my favorite way of traveling is to see how people live. I feel like I, I try to go across China, and certainly with the book I wrote, but also whenever I go anywhere, Europe, uh, Africa, where have you, I like to see how people live. And within Chongqing, you can sort of wander through these meandering um, mountain streets and see a noodle hawker uh, sort of hawking his wares. You can see someone performing acupuncture literally on the street in Chongqing. Uh, they're, of course, firing up the needles first so that, so that it's uh, antibacterial. But you can, you can sort of see there, there's an amazing crush of life in Chongqing just because of the rate of urbanization that you can't help but be immersed in that local culture. There are great museums. They're fine. But if you walk three blocks from the museum in any direction, you're going to be hit with that incredible Chongqing fervor that really makes it a one-of-a-kind city, I, I think, anywhere in the world. So this is one of those sightseeing opportunities where rather than having a, making reservations for the Orsay Gallery and going up the Eiffel Tower, you'll just walk in any one direction. And, and my fondest memories of great cities in, in Asia are exactly that. So you're talking about just kind of walking in, in one direction and, and observing and having a sense of how do I connect with the people? What are some little intimate moments you'd have that would really make you think, yeah, this is real travel? Personally, when I, when I was 23, it was the first time I ever went to Chongqing, and I was in a hostel at the, on the river in Chongqing. Chongqing became really famous because it's, it's close to the Three Gorges Dam, which is a major tourist destination, but also an incredible building project. So when the Three Gorges Dam was, was being erected, an, an enormous amount of people uh, migrated from the countryside to Chongqing. So you have a lot of great local culture there. I actually met a friend who was from a neighboring city in Chongqing, and the first thing he had me do was take the subway. And I'm like, look, I've, I've taken subways before. You know, this isn't a big deal. But he's like, trust me. 
So we get on the subway. We were indoors for the subway and we were in the actual subway station was, of course, indoors. And we're on it for a few stops when suddenly I see a burst of light and we blast outside of the side of this mountain. Like I said, Chongqing is a mountain city. And suddenly we were 100 meters over the entire cityscape. You have to imagine that the topography of Chongqing, it's these jutting sort of karst topography that I think we, we might associate with Guilin or other places in China. Right. But it's really incredible. So even taking the subway, you, you can sort of be over the overwhelm of the senses. You have all the people on the subway. You have this incredible view. Uh. You have people just trying to get to work. But this unbelievable backdrop that is still burned into my mind, you know, seven years later. I love that. When you travel in a place where you don't need a guidebook to tell you what museum to go and what time it's open and how much it costs, but you just are there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Zach Dykewald. His book is Young China. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Jeff's calling from Commerce Township in Michigan. Jeff, thanks for calling. Yeah, I've been to China three times. My wife's been there several times on business. Uh, but the first time we went was 20 years ago. And we went from Xi'an to Sanlong Mountain, where the Shaolin Monastery is all the way, you know, Shanghai and Beijing. But... We had stopped in Suzhou and fell in love with the city, and my wife told me a few years ago, she goes, you won't believe it, it's changed, it's dramatically grown. And so I went with her over to Suzhou for about 10 days, and I just explored it. And what you had mentioned in uh, kind of a preview of the show was the city within the city. And and that's exactly what I found was that, you know, it's uh, actually several cities within Suzhou and just wandering about, we found a old neighborhood near Shengdang Street, and just wandering down the canals through the neighborhoods and by the temples and things. It's 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 really as big or small as you want to make it, I think. But I also was going to ask. Um, I think I've seen most of <laughs> Suzhou now, but uh, your guess. I was wondering if you'd have any other recommendations that one should absolutely see in Suzhou. What about that, Zach, uh, traveling to uh, Zuzhou? So Suzhou is is actually known as a heaven on earth. I lived in Suzhou from 2012 to 2013. There's a saying, 上有天堂, 下有苏杭. Above there is heaven, on earth there is Suzhou and Hangzhou. So you're exactly right. Suzhou is actually where I imagined up the city within a city idea, that you have this swirl of old and new uh, intermingled within one place. Now, where would I go that's nearby Suzhou? I would leave. I know that sounds a little bit silly, but because of the Gautia, because of the high-speed railway now connecting Shanghai and Suzhou, uh, Suzhou used to be about three hours by car. Now it's 25 minutes by high-speed hmm. high train. Wow. And so whereas before Suzhou used to have a huge amount of personality, it was very unique, it was totally its own, I unfortunately, and, and my friends from Suzhou will, will not be happy about this, but I've watched it sort of become more of a suburb of Shanghai. So you have that big city pressure. You have that big city pace. And so you're, you, you lose a little bit of that local charm that I think Suzhou used to have. From Suzhou, you can get to a dozen smaller cities, third-tier cities, in really any direction. And again, I'm advocating for sort of getting lost in one of these places. Um, I, I sort of advocate for you to take your pick. When I was a teacher in China, for I, I did that for about six months when I, I would save up money and then literally go to the train station and choose a place that was the farthest my money could take me and, and take the slow train there. And I have to say, those train rides themselves, watching the country change, it, it made me feel like China was, was approachable. 
it made me understand sort of the dynamics of the country as it changed from, you know, massive city center. And then 50 miles out, you have, you know, you have farmland again. In fact, travel from a city like Suzhou out towards the farmland is as much akin to time travel as it is to actual physical travel. So from Suzhou and from Suzhou train station, I've done this personally many times. I would say go go choose a place an hour or two away and and be willing to to get lost. Sounds like good advice for China. Jeff, thanks for your call. Thank you. We're looking beyond the usual sites to explore China with the advice of Zach Dykwald. He's the author of Young China. Zach arrived on a work-study program, learned to speak Mandarin, and spent most of his 20s observing his millennial peers in China. Zach now operates a consultancy called the Young China Group from his home base in New York. His website is youngchinagroup.com. Another challenge for us when we try to understand China today is what you write about called the Shanghai fallacy, uh, that modernization equals westernization, where that might not be the case in China. Sure, I talk about the Shanghai fallacy. What, what exactly is the Shanghai fallacy? Well, I have found that I, I get to interact with a lot of wonderful people who, who travel to China um, and particularly go to Shanghai. They go to Shanghai and they have a wonderful guide who has spent much of their life changing their own mental diet, you know, that the information they feed their mind so that they can speak English and have that wonderful conversation with you. Uh, they have a beautiful steak on the bund overlooking the river. Uh, they have a lovely glass of French wine. Uh, they look out at the brands they recognize. They ignore the ones they can't. And they go home thinking, wow, for China, modernization equals westernization. As they grow wealthier, as they grow more modern, they want to become just like us. The thing about Shanghai is it's actually the least representative city in all of China. And so if you do get outside of China, yes, there's, there's a large amount of westernization that comes with modernization. In people's diets, it's, it's diversifying away from just Chinese and, and the way people dress. Uh, obviously, see a certain amount of westernization there. But issues of masculinity and femininity, uh, what it means to be beautiful, uh, what people want for themselves, their family, their country, a lot of that is being formed within China without as much influence from the West. In fact, people are sort of cherry picking what they like about Western society mm -hmm. and then what they like about traditional Chinese society and sort of the modern Chinese society. And they're making a new combination of the two. So don't expect just because Shanghai sort of looks like you know, it's moving in the direction of becoming more like New York, that everyone in China wants to be just like us. We are overlooking a lot of what makes Chinese modern culture really special. I think that's so exciting and important to recognize. To think that modernization equals westernization is probably ethnocentric and a little bit simplistic. And the fact that in China there is modernization that is easternization, that's pretty exciting. We've been talking with Zach Dykwald. His book is Young China. And Zach, uh, I'd like to just wrap up our conversation with thinking about this, the power of the millennials. We've got 80 million millennials in the United States, and that's quite a, quite a force culturally. In China, 400 million millennials, and uh, freedom is just so on people's minds. Just, let's just finish talking a little bit about, uh, I love you write about, there's a saying, uh, heaven is high and the emperor is far away. And then thinking about how how young young generation of Chinese are are reaching for freedom and exactly what that is. Sure. Well, there's this expectation that when I say that young people in China really do crave freedom, and they do. You know, freedom comes up in conversation far more than most people would expect. It's not a censored word uh, within China. 
the the saying I usually bring up when I talk about young people's relationship with the government, though, is exactly that. It's 天高皇帝远. It does mean heaven is high and the emperor is far away. Politics, with a few exceptions, but for the most part, does not interfere with most people's lives. I think there's this expectation that as soon as you get in China, you sort of get assigned uh, a party member who follows you around. If you're already within China, you know, there's there's one party member for every five people and and you have to check in with them at the end of every day. And sort of like in 1984, they watch you do calisthenics in the morning. It's not exactly like that. In fact, most people don't feel like they interact with the government at all. And so the type of freedom they're looking for is far more mundane than political freedom. It's the freedom to choose who they want to marry. It's the freedom to choose who they want to live It's or where they want to live. It's the freedom to uh, figure out what job they want without the interference of their parents or their cousins or their grandparents. It's the freedom to sort of set their own destiny. And whoever gets in the way of that, be it the government or more often family, again, it, it usually ends up being the family pressures and the expectations about what a good life ought to be, uh, this young generation is starting to push up against that. Zach, when you are on the streets uh, enjoying a town and you see a group of young Chinese people uh, and they're all looking at a camera and they're saying eggplant, first of all, what's the word and, and what do you think when you look at them? They're taking a picture. It's like us saying cheese. So, so the word is tiedza. Uh, tiedza means eggplant. And so if you, if everyone out there listening can say with me, tiedza, uh, you'll notice that your face has to smile in the process of saying that word. So they are just smiling for the camera. And then when you look at them, do you see promise? Do you see frustration? Do you see defeat? Do you see success? I see a few things. One of them is success. You know, the ability to travel abroad is such a dream for the older generations in China. The older slogans during sort of the Cultural Revolution were Chaoying Ganmei, surpass England, catch up with America. But people didn't know where America and England were. You know, people hadn't left the province, let alone the country. If they were leaving, it was often as sort of an economic refugee. So that young people can be traveling right now is an incredible testament, not to their success, honestly, but to the incredible success of their parents and grandparents who built China into what it is today. Wow. That's... On the other hand, I also see people struggling to figure out where they fit in the modern world. Uh, what do they want to be Chinese to mean in today's world? And that's a question that they are responsible. Their generation is responsible for answering. And Zach Dykewald, that is a topic that I think we can address the next time we get together. Thanks so much for joining us and giving us a better understanding of what's going on in China today. Always a pleasure, Rick. Thank you. Have you ever taken a verbal snapshot of your travels by writing a haiku poem? Tell us about the impressions and experiences you've had on the road. Here's some travel haiku our listeners have sent us from a link on our website at ricksteves.com radio. Presley Vizniak of Missoula, Montana was inspired to write this haiku on a rainy day in Swansea in Wales. Spokes awry, inverted umbrella on holy ground, birdbath baptismal. Sister and brother Karina and Daniel Gordon from Boston collaborated on this haiku about a photo opportunity they had while in Borneo in Malaysia. Canopy quakes, aim, orangutan plummets, run! Shell-shocked, perfect shot. Andrea Brunet of Bluefield, West Virginia, 
celebrates the bright floral blooms in the fields around her mountain home. Like lovely ink blots, Bluefield's namesake erupts each year, chicory. And Daniel Koppel from Columbus, Ohio, found an unexpected romance on vacation. Went to find a girl, but fell in love with Europe. She is my true love. This year, the parties are in our imaginations. So we'll have some virtual fun for Carnival in Venice and the German Rhineland. We'll hear why it got started hundreds of years ago, next on Travel with Rick Steves. There's a unique combination of heaven and hell in the story behind the Carnival and Mardi Gras celebrations that invigorate many communities in the old world and the new this time of year. One of the most elegant versions of Carnival is found in Venice, its origins are believed to date to a 12th century victory party. And in more recent centuries, the Carnival of Venice has become famous for its ornate masks. For a look at how the Venetians are celebrating, we're joined by local guide Stacy Gaboni. Stacy, welcome. Grazie, Rick. Buongiorno. Buongiorno. So tell us, uh, what is Carnival in Venice? Carnival is a very big party. I know we like to maybe associate it with uh, Mardi Gras. New Orleans, I think, might mm -hmm. be our biggest one in the United States. It's that period before Lent where everyone just lets loose. And in Carnival, Carnival in Venice is specifically so, so first famous. first of all, Lent is when you have to have austerity. You're yes. fasting, giving up things as you prepare for Easter. Be the sort of our hedonistic yes. debauchery so this is period just a, prior a, a to human that. human needs kind of thing. Okay, Get one it out big of your party. system. Okay. Get it out of your system and then behave yourself. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Okay, so. I think Carnival has become so well known, the Venetian Carnival, particularly because we are an island where the masks, the idea of using masks to disguise yourself from your neighbors is something sometimes I'd like to actually <laughs> incorporate year-round. It's not like you can walk out your front door to go to work with your coffee mug in hand, get in your car, and maybe you still have your slippers on or something because yeah. your high heels are in the back seat. You don't have that luxury in Venice. You walk out your front door, you run smack into you know, Everybody knows 20 people happening. that you know. And that, I think the the popularity of the Venetian mask wearing went on and on and on basically because of that proximity that we have in this particular city. There's a lot of historical references that we could talk about, I guess. With but There's the also just this heritage of this is a time when you had a, originally back in, in the 18th cent century, it was really yeah, in the popular. 1700s, mm -hmm. you have so many constraints on people, Absolutely. so many classes. I mean, you belong in this strata, you belong in that strata. This During took Carnival, away. everybody is every strata. There are Equality. no rules. There is anonymity. You put on that mask, and what happens the in Venice anonymity stays is key. in Venice. Exactly. <laughs> so today, as travelers, if we come to Venice during Carnival... Come uh, with your party shoes on. <laughs> okay, so it's a, I would imagine, from a classic Carnival point of view, it's become a little bit of just a, perhaps, a frat party and a little bit commercialized. Or perhaps cliche, maybe, yeah. in some avenues uh, it could be. On the other hand, it's a colorful and fun time to be in Venice. What's your strategy time. for enjoying Carnival in Venice? I think the best strategy would be to embrace the fact that you're going to be in a city of that size on a special holiday. Everywhere you go, you're going to find people dressed up, whether it's not like Halloween costume dressing up. It's elegant. There's gorgeous costumes, full regala, palace parties. It's the greatest people-watching period of the year, perhaps. You're inundated with tourists during this period, but in Venice, is the population going up or down? Down. It's going down. Yes. Fewer and fewer actually living yes. in this pretty difficult place to, to live day in and day there's out. A, there's a new look to the fabric of the local Venetian. Yeah. I, I mean, 
but we're much more multicultural than we were. I think it's sort of like a flux. Once upon a time, it was a very multicultural city back in the so, day. So I understand a lot of Asians and a lot of Russians are buying up small businesses. This is and, all true. And sometimes it's a front for, it's a way to, um, what do you call it, wash your, your illegal money from Russia? Apparently. Yeah. So we'll find that different flavor in Venice. But there still is uh, a substantial community of people who consider themselves Venetian. There are true Venetians, and those people have lived generations, generations still living in their family palaces and everything. And do they celebrate Carnival, or they just roll their eyes and say, this is a good time to get out of town? I think a lot of them get go skiing. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> the Venetians tend to go to the certain beach in the summer and the certain mountain in the winter, so right. they, they sort of stick with their sestiere. But back to the carnival and what you could do as a, as a tourist during that uh-huh. time is, is I would come prepared to participate. I think that's the best way to enjoy it. I'm not going to recommend renting a $1,000 costume, in a 1,000-euro costume You can actually city. do that? Yes, there sir, are you can. Shops. There are some famous costume shops, brilliant, beautiful, traditional wear. But, you know, you could always make your own at home or perhaps rent something here. And, so the people and with lots it. of money who have the over-the-top parties at home, they're the ones to spend 1,000 euros and prance around town with these well, wild Casanova private, outfits. private boat transport and these oh, palaces, yeah. the palaces. Back to those families who for generations lived in these palaces, you know, it's it's big business to rent out your palace for a private party. And that happens all over the city. Because there are these, like there's probably a glut of private palaces available for rent. Absolutely. This is also seen with the, um, the Biennale that we have, these, these art and architecture events. But during the carnival, if you get online and you're thinking about coming over to see us and you want to participate and and see the parades of the costumes and the boats that go down and the flying of the angel and whatnot, then you should maybe invest and go into one of these private parties. You can buy tickets online. There's a grand range from 150 so, a night to, you know, 1500 That's great. So if you want to actually partake and not just wander on the street and mm-hmm. feel like you're all dressed up and taking selfies, yeah, but exactly. actually connect, you could actually get tickets to one of these yeah. uh, fancy palazzo come, balls. Come with your friends, you know, make it a group event. Organize what you think you want to do, and, and I, I think it's... That's a very special way to celebrate. Stacy Gaboni married a local chef when she was an art student in Venice, and she now has her own studio there and guides American visitors around her romantic city. We have a link to artwork she exhibits online with the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Stacy's leading us through the elegant carnival traditions of Venice right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our interview with Stacy was recorded a few years ago, long before we'd ever imagine how a global pandemic would require us to wear masks in the streets of our towns. So, Stacy, generally Carnival is before Lent, and yes. Lent is the 40 days leading up to Easter. Yes. And we think of Carnival as uh, the, the big Mardi Gras party and, and so on, and that's kind of what we're talking it's about kind of, here. It's slightly different, but it's the same, same, same period. Of, <laughs> same sort of period and the same kind of chance to let the society vent before mm-hmm. buckling down. If we're a tourist in Venice, just take us on a, a little walk. What events are there going to be in the squares? What might we smell? What might we eat? Mm-hmm. What might we do? There's always an, uh, the Comune prints out an uh, agenda of events and festivals and things that they're providing for the city. And you'll be able to find that online each year mm-hmm. to make your plans because obviously the period before Lent changes. It's not always a fixed mm-hmm. fixed dates. One of the favorite things I like to do to watch the children is over in Campo San Paolo is the ice skating rink. They they make a, a small little, they fill in a small area of this big campo and all the kids come and put on these little skates and mm. and play. And it's sort of, you Ice know, skating in Venice. Ice skating in oh, Venice. Isn't it. that funny? Not, not on the Grand Canal or anything. No. But, <laughs> but they make this nice little rink. And the other thing that we do during this period is eat a lot of fritelle. 
These fried donut balls covered in sugar. The entire city has that oh, perfume. Of these are kind of like beautiful donut holes. They're like beautiful donut holes yeah. and slightly larger. <laughs> some have raisins. Some have a little liqueur in them. Wow, they're oh. addictive. I have to, you know, one a day. <laughs> and what, what would be the, the drink of choice during Carnival? Uh, well, I, I think the drink of choice in Venice, I know that we talk a lot about the spritz, uh, uh-huh. but I am lean more towards the Prosecco, and that a nice the, glass of bubbly white that's wine. That's sort of the Italian champagne. It is, it's, and it comes from the Veneto region, so it's specifically a good place to have that in Venice, and it goes down nicely with a fritelle. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Stacy Gaboni, and we're talking about Carnival in Venice. Stacey, let's just uh, wrap up this conversation with your favorite carnival memory uh, in the last 10 or 15 years in Venice that you're comfortable talking about in public. Okay. <laughs> okay. Given Venice's <laughs> right, reputation. Exactly. Of... I, I think this is rather appropriate. My favorite one um, was really in the early days. I think it was 2002 or three. I'm not really sure. An artist friend of mine invited me to go to a erotic poetry reading. An erotic poetry reading. Nice. I I dabble in wordsmithing. Uh And uh, I thought it was just a small get-together during Carnival in a private home. No, it was the festival of Giorgio Baffo, the famous erotic poet from like the 17th century. In Campo San Maurizio, every year during Carnival, people get up on stage in full attire and read in Venetian dialect their erotic poetry. Absolutely wonderful. I didn't know that was a genre of Venetian poetry. Quite a character, this Giorgio Baffo. You can check him out online as well. Um, this event goes, it's been going on for a very long time in different forms, but in contemporary times, and it was probably... always during Carnival. And I got up on stage, this American chick from Jersey, <laughs> read my poem in English, <laughs> and was presented with a small wooden hand-painted penis pin as a gift for my participation. What can I say? <laughs> well, there you go. Carnival, you, I'm sure you'll have surprises when you have the, uh, the gumption to get in there and... Uh, and, and participate. And, and, and if you happen to be in Venice during Carnival, what happens at Carnival stays in Venice in Carnival. stays in Carnival <laughs> in Venice. Stacey Gavoni, thank you for sharing your favorite memory of Carnival in Venice. <laughs> Grazie, Rick. Come on, take me to the sing and play Where the dancing is elite And there's music in the street both night and day Let's set our sights a little north and bring in German tour guide Fabian Ruger now to look at Carnival in the Rhine River Valley of Germany. Fabian, it's good to have you here. Thanks for having me. Tell me, just to get me straight on this, we have Easter and we have Lent, which is a time of fasting and so on leading up to Easter. And then there's Mardi Gras that we all know about from New Orleans and so on. Mm -hmm. And Carnival. Give me a whole thumbnail uh, context. What is all this stuff? So it all has Christian origins. Um, Some say it's even older, but what we know for facts is in 600 AD, Pope Gregory decrees that there's 40 days of fasting before Easter. And when you start the fasting period, you have to get rid of all the food that might perish in the following 40 days. Ah, So you need to eat that food. Around the same time, there is some sort of taxation as well, where the the landlords or the feudal lords get payment in food from their farmers. So the whole thing turns into some sort of um, party the night before the fasting period begins. And that is the birth moment of carnival, which as a word probably derives from carnevale, which means farewell to meat, because that's when the fasting period begins. 
carnival culminates in some big feast 40 days before Easter? Well, of course, what happens is that what is supposed to be just one day very quickly turns into a whole week of partying because it begins to mix with other customs that already existed. And so very quickly you have a whole season before fasting in which the Catholic Church agrees should be sort of a simulation of hell because the fasting period is your cleansing period, so you switch back to heaven. In other words... What the Catholic Church allows you here is to see what anarchy and chaos and hell will be like before you become a good person again through your fasting. Now, this must have served almost a purpose in the Middle Ages as a safety valve, a way for people to vent, people to put a a mask on their face, and anything goes. Indeed. And that's, of course, if you will, simulated anarchy so that real anarchy will not happen. We know Carnival in Venice. It's famous because they have those beautiful masks. And, of course, that was when people could hook up with people of different social classes and economic classes and all sorts of stuff could go on because, hey, I'm wearing a mask and this is before Lent. What is it like in Germany? Why is it a big deal in Germany? One thing that makes Carnival very interesting, I think, in Germany is, um, first of all, there is still the division of faith because in the Protestant regions in Germany, let's face it, I can say this as a Protestant, Carnival in Protestant regions is boring or non-existent (laughs) because only the Catholics know how to do it. Germany is split in the middle, basically. The South, Bavaria, and so on would be more Catholic. Yes, the, the, the Catholic regions west of the Rhine and in the South, they would have the, the proper carnival. And, of course, that's because they have these historic traditions. Now, with the abolition of fasting by Protestantism, there's no reason anymore for carnival. Therefore, the Protestant regions, by their very definition, don't really need carnival. Yeah. And that's why these traditions were weakened over the centuries in the Protestant regions. German tour guide Fabian Reuger is taking us deep into the origins of Carnival in the Rhineland of Germany right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our interview with Fabian was recorded prior to the pandemic shutdowns. You mentioned it becomes a season, not just a party before Lent, but actually a season. Uh, How does that relate to Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras? One of the links to Fat Tuesday, Mardi Gras, is that depending on the calendar, it begins earlier in some places and later in others. So what is Mardi Gras? The Tuesday in the Cologne region, for instance, um, usually Carnival begins on Thursday. So it's actually um, sort of a fat Thursday. Thursday. But the main week is the one that begins on the Rosenmontag, and everything ends on Ash Wednesday, of course, because that's when the fasting period begins. And this this Ash Wednesday and Rosy Monday and fat whatever Thursday, this is all in the week before Lent? That's right. The Lent begins basically with Ash Wednesday. Okay, so roughly 47 to 40 days before Easter, you've got this week-long period in Germany mm-hmm. that is Carnival. And is Cologne the greatest place for Carnival, or what cities are great? It to has go the to? largest and I think the most historic Carnival. Keep in mind that Napoleon, as he invades Germany in the 19th century, bans Carnival. That's interesting because France, of course, is a Catholic country, but Napoleon does not like the idea that there are masked people dancing around in the streets, especially since the carnival parades make a lot of fun of the French troops. Oh, my goodness. Which is why by the <laughs> 1820s, carnival has been banned for about eight years. Carnival gets this rebirth by the Prussians, who are Protestant. They now own the city of Cologne, but they want to revitalize the spirit of carnival and therefore gain some sort of... Uh, allegiance to Prussia and the local population. I see. You can win the heart and soul of the populace by giving them giving subsidized them bread or excuse to party. The excuse to party to give them the carnival back. Now, now if, I, if I'm going to Cologne, let's say, for carnival, right. yeah. as a tourist, as, a, as an American who doesn't really have connections there and friends there, how can I enjoy it and what will I see? Well, you should arrive 
obviously just you know the weekend just before. And then, especially on Rose Monday, the Rosenmontag, there are the main parades on the streets of Cologne. Our cars are being hauled around. Usually they have huge political cartoons or caricatures of figures. And there are the fools in Carnival. You always elect the Prince of Fools. And the parades, they'll throw sweets to the children in the streets. And so I grew up as a child, always going to these Rose Monday parades. So Every Rose little Monday village. Is the parade. And, and Mon- the- Rose Monday is the main and main then, parade day. And what else will happen later um, on in the week? Of course, there's lots of partying going on. As a child, of course, you're not allowed to go to parties that go into the after hours. But, you know, as soon as you can, you will. Okay. It's a good and you're Rhineland a full-grown adult and you can party hardy. What are you going to wear? What would you do if you were going to Carnival to have a time that you'll never forget? Rule number one is you cannot go without a costume of sorts. You have to dress up. It doesn't matter as what almost, but you have to somehow be dressed up and be visibly a fool of sorts. Now, of course, you can dress up as Batman. That's foolish enough, you know, or as Superman. Um, I remember a couple of friends of mine went as the uh, the American band Kiss, all in makeup and everything, and they were one of the most admired costumed guys in the streets, and everybody loved it. Carnival is, it's fairly crazy, because if you get into the city of Cologne, if you can get in on that day, uh, it will be absolutely packed. Everybody will be in costume. Even the odd policeman patrolling the streets will have something something on that basically tries to make it look like a costume even though he's still wearing a uniform. And <laughs> so even when he's on service, on duty, they will the try to do something up. to show they're also oh, part of Carnival. Great. Uh, and uh, of course, legally speaking even, formally, the Prince of Fools is the mayor of Cologne in this Carnival period. And of course, it all ends on Ash Wednesday when the Prince of Fools has to hand the reins back to the ruling authorities. There's a part of Carnival called Women's Day, is that right? That's right, Weiber Fastnacht. Basically, that means women's Mardi Gras, literally. It's the feast night of women. And it is tradition on Weiber Fastnacht that a woman will take a scissor, walk around on the streets, and any man who walks by who wears a tie can get his tie cut. And in return, you have to give him a kiss on the cheek. Men are prepared for that. They take out the worst ties on Weiber Fastnacht onto the streets, and then... Some bring several if they want to, you know, get several kisses, of course. Uh, <laughs> bring your and, ties. You know, that's, uh, that's all part of the fun of Carnival. And if you're not going to deal with the crowds in Cologne, but you want to celebrate Carnival, will you find this in many places in Germany? All along the Rhine River, pretty much, you will mm-hmm. find Carnival. All the way even down to Basel, which uh, in ah. Switzerland, which is, of course, interesting because it's a Protestant city, and it's one of the few big Protestant cities in Europe that has maintained the Carnival tradition. Hmm. Frankfurt would have carnival? Uh, Frankfurt would have carnival. Koblenz, Mainz, Mainz, Koblenz, they all would have carnival. But Cologne is definitely the one, where I think. But of course, I'm a local patriot. Fabian Ruger, thank you so much for a little insight in how Germany parties hardy before the Lenten season leading up to Easter. Do you say happy carnival or what do you say? Depending, it's very important which greeting you use. You have to use the right carnival greeting. In Cologne, you say Kölle Alaf. And what does that mean? That means, you know, remember the time from French occupation, etc. It means Cologne above all. Cologne above all. And how do I say that again? Cologne above Danke schön, Fabian Ruger. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Casmore Hall and Donna Bardsley. We get website support from Amara Kipnikone, affiliate support from Sheila Gerzoff, our theme music is by Jerry Frank. Our listener travel haiku were read by Gretchen Strout. Thanks to our colleagues at Arizona Public Media in Tucson and at the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. Email us about your travels. We're at radio at ricksteves.com. 
and join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Hey, I'm Rick Steves. In my latest book, For the Love of Europe, I share the highlights of a lifetime of exploring Europe, my favorite experiences, sights, and encounters in a hundred essays. If you love Europe too, this is four decades of greatest hits in 400 pages, made to order to stoke your travel dreams. You can order your copy of For the Love of Europe at ricksteves.com.